Yeah, this might not be broadcasting here. It might just be for the recording. I don't know. All right, so welcome to the February uh, AIDS seminar. Uh, Dr. Mary Margaret Andrews here is going to be speaking to us today on fourth generation HIV testing. So, as she'll tell you, the first major change in um, recommended HIV testing, diagnostic testing, for many, many, many years, an important topic for us. Uh, Dr. Andrews uh, uh, completed her undergraduate career at Swarthmore and then her MD at Columbia, after which she came to Dartmouth and has remained here joining the faculty in, I think, 1997. 1997 has been with us ever since. Uh, is the PI for the Part D Ryan White program uh, and very active otherwise in many ways around HIV in the state and nationally. Um, the, uh, speaker today has nothing to disclose, no commercial uh, support for the session, and I am required to tell you two more things that you, if you're going to receive credit for this, if you're going to claim credit, you have to be here for at least 80% of the program, so the clock is ticking. And then also uh, the uh, conflict uh, that I have uh, as a uh, consultant for Gilead Biosciences has been resolved uh, by the planning committee for the session. And with that, I'll hand it over to Dr. Andrews. Sorry we're late, but technology was in our way. Good afternoon. We're going to uh, try to take a, a mixed approach to understanding fourth generation HIV testing today, talk both about some of the clinical and lab aspects, and uh, also about the local implementation. I'm going to start with a little bit of background and uh, information about the need and justification for the new CDC algorithm. Then we'll go over the algorithm itself. Then we'll talk about the DH proposed algorithm and implementation, some local issues. And then we'll uh, summarize and uh, take any questions that you have. I'm pleased to introduce Mark Servinsky, who's uh, the director of the DH clinical chemistry lab and point of care testing, who's been um, instrumental in implementing the DH program and transitioning us from our current tests. So we'll, uh, I have used some of his slides, uh, and some of which you have seen before, but we'll have a chance to go over them again in detail. A brief reminder that the global HIV pandemic has now affected more than 32 million people, and there have been over 33 million deaths. The majority of this pandemic has involved HIV-1 infection, and in general, uh, the majority of U.S. infections have been Group M infections, the main group, and especially in the U.S. and in Europe, clade B strains. The, um, this Group M strains are all currently uh, identified with the current third-generation HIV uh, ELISA Western blot algorithm, but there have been some gaps specifically related to uh, Group O, N, and M testing with previous generations of HIV tests. And as you'll see, HIV-2 is a concern. There are many fewer HIV-2 infections in the world. The majority of them are in West Africa and in places where West Africans have migrated, including uh, Spain, Brazil, Venezuela, and then increasingly some infections in Europe, 
the U.S. and Canada. There are an estimated 200 infections, HIV-2 infections in the U.S. These strains uh, have often been cross-reactive with HIV-1 Western blotting and uh, have been misclassified. There are also some rare reports of co-infection with HIV-1 and HIV-2, which complicates the testing. These strains are also harder to diagnose in the acute setting because they tend to have lower levels of viremia. This has translated into a less pathogenic infection in general, which is good news, but the lower levels of viremia have really complicated the, di the acute diagnosis of HIV-2. So we're making a big change in our testing. The current algorithm of ELISA and Western blotting has been in place for more than 25 years, since 1989. And the basic principles of the ELISA, Western, uh, the ELISA and reflex to Western blot testing was that the ELISA was a very sensitive screening test that was easy to perform in the lab. It was a chemoluminescent type assay and um, initially not particularly automated and later generations highly automated. And so this was the favored test for many years. But because of uh, some false positive assays, there was a need to, uh, and, and some issues related to false negativity, there was a need to have additional tests in the algorithm for which we initially used the Western blot and in subsequent iterations an immunofluorescent assay. The Western blot, remember, is a, a way of electrophoresing essentially antibody responses to specific HIV proteins, um, especially the P24 nucleic acid capsid protein and the GP41 envelope glycoprotein. Now, we do have an issue in the United States still with uh, people who don't know that they have HIV infection. You're aware of this cascade, but of the 1.1 million people living with HIV infection, it's estimated that at least 14%, if not 20% of people living with HIV don't know that they have HIV infection. And so that's an important reservoir of people who we're still targeting with, with HIV testing. Over the last 10 years, many more Americans have gotten HIV tested in different circumstances. Risk-based testing has been less of a focus, fortunately. Overall, about 45% of Americans are estimated to have been tested for HIV, slightly greater percent of women than in men, presumably related to the perinatal testing. Uh, there, is hot, there are higher uptake testing rates um, in 25 to 44-year-olds, and uh, some evidence that more African-Americans are getting tested, which is good because, as many of you are aware, this is a really affected population. There's also been an increasing awareness of the fact that the people who are unaware of their HIV infection account for a very large percent of the new HIV infections. So there has been a lot more focus on getting people tested and keeping them from preventing them from transmitting HIV to others. So I'm sorry this is, uh, looks to be animated, so I may just even flash it all, oops, flash it all up here as we're, we're talking. Uh, since 2006, the CDC has recommended routine opt-out HIV screening, which 
is something you're all very familiar with. And here's the exact language. I'm not going to read it all for you. Unfortunately, you know that this, uh, these recommendations were not uniformly taken up by insurers uh, and were not initially uh, part of the US Preventive Services Task Force recommendations. In 2004, the ACOG guidelines, the American Academy of Obstetrics and Gynecology guidelines, also went to opt-out testing. And uh, the recommendations were to, that you should offer this test for all prenatal patients, repeat the testing in the third trimester, and do rapid testing in women for labor, uh, in women in labor with undocumented HIV status. It took until about last year for these recommendations to be codified into um, law, if you will. And that's a very wonderful thing for many of us. Uh, it was a process that you see played out really over 10 years following the CDC's initial recommendations early in 2000. So the US, Services Preventive, uh, US Preventive Services Task Force did completely endorse the Centers for Disease Control recommendations finally. The uh, ACA was adopted and mandated that HIV screening needed to be covered by insurance without a copay, leaving only people who were uninsured, really with no mechanism at all, to pay for HIV testing. Um, I'll insert the fact that there also has been home HIV testing available during this interval that's really um, more widely available than it used to be. CMS has also uh, expanded Medicare coverage for HIV screening to uh, follow the CDC recommendations, and that's really just as of several days ago at the end of January. They're in the 30-day comment period, which will remove this barrier, hopefully, for many of us who've had trouble ordering uh, HIV tests, screening HIV tests for Medicare patients. And uh, briefly, to just share a little bit of local progress, in 2010, I gave grand rounds, I guess, on HIV testing and summarized some HIV, local HIV data documenting where the HIV tests were be sent, being sent from within DHMC. And you'll see that we were increasing our testing rates beginning in 2000, but that our overall testing rates uh, were still uh, on the lower side. And there were many departments that were sending very few HIV tests. And thanks to Dr. Servinsky, we have the 2014 data, which documents that at DH, which includes now all DH sites that bring their labs to DH, to Dartmouth-Hitchcock, so it's a slightly different population than on the left side of the slide, there were more than 10,000 HIV tests performed last year, 36 screened positive, there were 12 confirmed positives, giving a false positive rate of 0.22%. When you say false positive, what do you mean? What about the license? That's my own I'll be happy to speak to it. Um, so the, the false positive rate would be a screen positive with the third generation of that we test, and they did not confirm the illustrious block. So there's no there. So since the test is both of those, is really zero false positives. Just, that's just a screening test. Yeah, sorry, but we didn't identify, we didn't tell anyone they have HIV when they didn't. No. no. This is within the lab. 
So to uh, close out the, the background section, in terms of barriers to testing, um, one of the things that I think is still a major problem is that most providers or many providers still focus on risk-based screening, and we all know that risk-based screening misses a lot of people with HIV infection. People also are not well-educated, in my opinion, about the HIV-associated medical conditions, and if you haven't looked at the British National Health Service list of medical conditions that are HIV-associated as triggers for HIV testing, I draw your attention to that list. It includes basic things like ITP, pancytopenia, um, things that fall into lots of different uh, organ systems. People we see in the hospital frequently as consultants and recommend HIV testing that are not being tested. Um, the other big group of people in, that, uh, in those categories is cancer patients, and there is some limited data about certain populations within Dartmouth-Hitchcock who meet criteria for HIV testing who are not currently being HIV tested. Another barrier to testing is really uh, the access to rapid test results, and uh, we see this in the clinic where we do have access to an oral rapid test sometimes that's provided uh, by the state for some of our partners of HIV-positive patients. This test is really appealing because you get a swab, don't need a blood stick, don't have to send them down the hallway, get the result immediately, and are able to meet, on, meet with someone one-on-one. -on -one. So the logistics of testing are still uh, challenging for patients and providers. So in June of 2014, the Centers for Disease Control finally, or I say, released its laboratory testing for diagnosis of HIV infection updated recommendations. And this uh, is available at the CDC website under their HIV testing section. This is the summary document describing why uh, a new algorithm was recommended and what the algorithm should be. And here's a summary of the, what they're saying about the need for updated HIV testing recommendations and their thinking about why the algorithm needed to change. First of all, we, have, uh, we know that we have improved methods of detecting acute HIV infection. We have improved nucleic acid amplification testing um, available and a need to use it in our diagnostic algorithm for acute HIV. And I'm paraphrasing here. There's a very elaborate, nice discussion in the guidance about this, this slide. For early HIV detection, we also know we have this great new fourth-generation combination antibody assays, which we're going to talk more about, and that the Western blot screening is really less sensitive during early infection and that you can be steered wrong using the Western blot as your confirmatory test. As I just spoke with you about, we know more about how increased transmission um, is a risk with acute or early HIV infection because of the very high viral loads. The estimate is that the transmission risk is 26 times uh, the, the rate at other points uh, someone who has more well-established HIV infection. And we also have more data about the benefits of an early antiretroviral therapy for patients and about its use also in preventing um, HIV transmissions. And finally, there are improved methods to correctly diagnose HIV-2 infection. And HIV-2, um, we're not going to focus on in our discussion today. I'll refer to little pieces in the algorithm, but there are new diagnostics in HIV-2, um, including some rapid tests 
as well as um, some better access to confirmatory tests and on non-FDA approved HIV-2 RNA testing. So an important reminder, what we're talking about with these updated recommendations is really uh, uh, recommendations for plasma and serum in adults and children over the age of two. So this does not negate uh, what you know previously about perinatal testing algorithms. And it really is about lab-based testing. It's not about use of these tests in the community setting or using uh, whole blood or dry blood spot testing at the point of care. The sequence of the appearance of laboratory markers in HIV infection is something that uh, th uh, this diagram is one that you've seen many times before. And uh, we'll, we'll go over it here and discuss some of the progress that's been made with the HIV test. First of all, just to orient you, this is days on the bottom. And then you have the primary HIV infection listed at day zero. You have the development of HIV RNA in plasma, the high uh, replication that we discussed that then will plateau. Eventually, uh, you develop antibody, but it takes a while. Initially, it was uh, just an Ig. G antibody that was detected by the uh, first generation ELISA assays. And subsequently, these assays detect also IgM. So uh, the uh, detection, they, they, they're grouped together here on this slide as one just antibody. Also, there's, we know about HIV P24 antigen and the fact that it peaks at an intermediate uh, time between the RNA and the development of antibody. In the bottom here, the uh, periods of infection are broken down into the eclipse period where there is no assay that we have that can detect HIV infection into the acute replication period from the point when you can detect virus in the blood to established HIV infection when the full antibody response has uh, evolved. Um, on the bottom, it lists the evolution of the assays. And as I mentioned, the first generation assays uh, were really only able to detect IgG. Now the detection window has gotten uh, earlier and earlier for the generations of assays. And with the assay that we're going to be focusing on today, the fourth generation assay uh, really can detect P24 antigen relatively shortly after the HIV RNA uh, becomes detectable. So the window period uh, during which you, know, you can detect HIV has shrunk considerably. I'm just going to read uh, some numbers which are slightly different that are included in the text than what's depicted on the slide here. Um, the nucleic acid amplification is, if you're using round numbers, generally detectable within 10 days of infection. The P24 antigen by fourth generation chemoluminescent assay is detectable four to 10 days after the RNA. So that would be within 14 days of HIV infection, maybe a little longer. The IgM detectable by the third and fourth generation assays comes up three to five days after the P24 and 10 to 13 days after the HIV RNA. So the earliest that the, uh, that the 
antibody would be detectable is in the 10, in the uh, three-week range, 20 days kind of minimum. So uh, I think just looking at this test, you can see the advantages to narrowing the window period and uh, improving our diagnostic ability earlier in HIV disease. With this said, this is the algorithm that the Centers for Disease Control came up with. And let's just walk through this. It starts with an HIV-1-2 antigen antibody combination immunoassay, like the fourth generation assay I was just referring to. I'm gonna, you'll see me slipping back and forth. I'm trying to call it one thing, but fourth generation combo assay is a frequent way that it's referred. If this assay is negative, then presumably, unless someone has acute HIV infection and is in that less than 14-day um, window period, uh, they do not have HIV infection. If it's positive, it goes for a recommended confirmatory assay. And this test here that's recommended is um, the one that there are only a limited number available, but the one that I'm going to be referring to, the one that we will ultimately be using, is the BioRad multi-spot HIV-1-2 uh, rapid assay that is an immunoconcentration assay that differentiates between HIV-1 and HIV-2. If the HIV-1 assay is positive and the HIV-2 is negative, it's reported out as having HIV-1 antibodies detected. If it's HIV-1 negative, HIV-2 positive. It goes on to the HIV-2 confirmatory algorithm. If both antibodies are detected, then it goes to subsequent um, confirmation, which is depicted here. And um, if, it's, if the HIV-1 is negative or indeterminate and the HIV-2 is negative, then in this algorithm, it should be uh, reflexed, if possible, to HIV-1 nucleic acid testing that would allow you to confirm whether someone has acute HIV infection or not. So just to stop briefly, are there questions about this algorithm? So this is the ideal. And as you'll see, the implementing this can be a little tricky depending on what assays you're using. This is a new assay here and a new assay here. Neither of these are the current ones that are um, in use in our lab. Okay, I'll move on. We'll come back to this if we need to. So when it comes to implementation, there are a few tricky issues. And so here's my uh, brief attempt at a lab primer to remind you about serum versus plasma. Usually we obtain serum in a gold top tube. You allow whole blood to clot and then serum is the liquid part of the blood after coagulation and it contains serum globulins. So it would be okay for testing for immunoglobulins or antibody responses. To get plasma, we collect in a lavender EDTA tube. EDTA is an anticoagulant. Uh, you take the whole blood in the lab. It's spun and centrifuged to remove cells. The plasma is the clear fluid 
that's here and is extracted from the tube. It's then uh, basically got uh, fibrin and clotting factors in it, in addition to serum. It's refrigerated, <coughs> frozen, and can be stored for up to 10 years. So you see that the plasma process is more involved. It's more, uh, number one, more expensive, if you will, in a way, both in terms of number of tubes and number of lab efforts that it takes to actually get the serum. Um, and, uh, but on the other hand, it gives you a lot of flexibility in the long run uh, to do testing that you might want to do in the future. So when it comes uh, to implementing this algorithm at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, we are uh, looking at doing the following, and I'm giving a compare and contrast. Actually, let me move. Well, I'll talk you through this, and then we'll go backwards if we need to. What we were doing was this third generation, ELISA, had very high sensitivity and specificity, was available 18 hours a day, six days a week, with charge of approximately $182. And the confirmatory IFA, or Western blot, actually it was an IFA that they'd been doing for a long time. They hadn't been doing Western blots anymore. Was done at the Mayo Clinic. And I don't have the exact charge listed for that, but I'm sure it was a lot. Uh, we did have the Allier determined fourth generation combination combo rapid antigen test available in the micro lab. Uh, remember, these other tests are done in the chemistry labs, so this micro lab. This was done nights and weekends for Ahmed, OB, and the emergency department, people who needed a test during this interval when you couldn't get the rapid turnaround on a serum test. And we also in-house have the uh, quantitative HIV RNA testing, which is an expensive test, uh, which we don't use as a standard part of our HIV diagnostic algorithm. The proposal at, um, and actually effective today, unbeknownst to Mark, <laughs> tomorrow, unbeknownst to uh, Mark, the timeline of his uh, rollout of the new fourth generation test got moved up due to some broken machinery. And um, there was a hope to be able to spend a little bit more time uh, validating the test as well as ex educating people about it. But unfortunately, some broken equi equipment made it important to actually roll out the test right away. So the fourth generation combination antigen antibody test is being rolled out tomorrow. Um, this is a test that is a very sensitive and specific test that will detect P24 antigen, HIV-1, and HIV-2. A positive test does not tell you which of those things it detected. But it will be read as positive if it detects any of those things. This test is an automated format, which is great for the lab. It's run 24-7, 365, and it returns in 29 minutes of lab time. So the turnaround time into EDH should be, uh, should be quick. And so it's essentially like a lab-based rapid test, and that's really good news for all of us. The other piece of good news is that the test is going to, uh, the charge for the test is going to be less. Uh, based on the lower manpower needs that are required to perform the test. It will be sent out, if it's positive, on confirmation to the Mayo for the multi-spot rapid HIV-1-2 test. 
and then I'll show you the rest of the confirmatory Mayo assay in a minute. <coughs> we still have the quantitative HIV-1 Roche assay available um, should it be needed for in-house HIV RNA testing. Uh, if you're not interested in HIV test details, just close your eyes and listen for a minute. Uh, but if you are, just briefly, this is a, these tests are really exciting. Um, there are two platforms available, and uh, Dr. Svinsky went through an elaborate process to look at the, uh, this, compare the different test platforms and which one was the right one for Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Dartmouth-Hitchcock is actually renting the equipment. Currently, um, there hasn't been a decision yet about a capital purchase down the road, but I'm um, just going to see how it goes. And um, this, is, this test is a significant advance to our past testing. To reiterate that the current screen um, is essentially confirmed within our own lab before it's sent to the Mayo Clinic, and this happens in an automated fashion, so you don't need to do anything um, here to make this happen. Additionally, I forgot to mention that um, the EDH order, which I'll show you in a minute, uh, and preference lists are all rolling over to the new test. The lab number is the same for the HIV screen as it was before. I believe it's 473. And um, it, there will be a process by which if you have that on your, your preference list, those will just be corrected to the new test. This is the Mayo algorithm, and it could make you dizzy if you want, really. But it is slightly different from the Centers for Disease Control algorithm. And one of the main differences is that, um, uh, to draw your attention down here, they actually, if you have uh, a positive HIV-1 an or an antibody that's indeterminate, and uh, HIV-2 negative, they do confirm it with Western blot again. And then if there's question about it, um, this test it, about acute HIV infection, you get this comment panel saying you still need to consider HIV RNA for acute testing. And that's what's going to come back to you as a provider. And that's not a new concept to you guys. That's the same thing that's done right now. There is no ability within the uh, current process of sending uh, serum, that gold top tube, to Mayo to get back a quantitative or qualitative HIV RNA test without sending a second sample. So if for any reason you want that result, an HIV RNA, you re feel like you really need it, then you're going to have to order that result. And as many of you know, sometimes we drag our feet doing that because of payment issues. And uh, we don't currently have a process and hold format for ordering that test. It's something we could think about in the future. I put an X over this part of the algorithm because this is where um, this test is apparently going away, the immunofluorescent assay for HIV that was previously included in their algorithm. And this, uh, there's a whole separate algorithm for HIV-2 that I'm not showing you. And their algorithm for HIV-1 is up here, which is essentially what we're currently doing. Here's what the order looks like in EDH, lab 473. It's the HIV screen, fourth generation. 
Here's what the negative screen looks like in chart review. And here's what it looks like in results review. In terms of reactive screen in chart review, you'll get the same comment field that you currently get, which basically says the test, you know, further testing is, um, I should read the exact thing to you since there's been so much controversy about this. It's going to say the result of this HIV screen cannot be interpreted as positive or negative in the absence of confirmatory testing. Confirmatory testing has automatically been ordered on this sample, this fourth generation test screens for the presence of HIV-1 P24 antigen as well as antibodies reactive against HIV-1 and HIV-2. A negative screen does not rule out acute HIV infection if acute HIV infection is suspected. HIV nucleic acid testing may be indicated. A question about the reporting. With this assay, you know, by default, we two assays. So you can imagine that many specimens, but not all, would have both subsets of that two-piece assay positive. What I wasn't clear about in the mechanics is whether it's possible to know which one you have in front of you so that might there be some majority of samples that are positive for both and essentially pre-confirmed, that you already have a positive anti-confirmatory test in front of you and that that send out actually a third test. Are you, just to be sure I understand your question, are you talking about which part of the assay, meaning, meaning the P24 versus the HIV-1 or HIV-2? Yeah, this, for this combination assay, most samples for people with chronic HIV infection would be positive for both the antigen and the antibody pieces of the test. Yeah. And so you essentially, it's confirmed. And so you can just know the answer without requiring another one. But then, of course, some people might have only one so they're really in common. Right. I think I can answer this, and I'll mark, you can comment that with this current assay, you cannot distinguish which is which. There is an assay, I believe one now, if not two, that can distinguish, but that those are not the assays that have this uh, fourth generation automated platform for use in, in major, major labs. So uh, you have no way of knowing when that screening test is positive, whether that's the P24 antigen, the HIV-1, or the HIV-2. There, there are some new tests on the horizon that are trying to set it up in a way that you can actually tell if it's P24 antigen, HIV-1, <coughs> or HIV-2 But those are, we'll say, either pre-FDA or with the FDA. So they're not quite ready for laboratory yet. Well, they probably are, but the FDA hasn't been used so, um, you'll get that C comment field if you're in chart in results review, just to remember to look at that. So, the future of the, the rapid test is uncertain. Uh, we talked about how the assay time has shrunk, so they're more comparable than they used to be. And there's been a little bit of debate about whether we could hold on to that uh, rapid assay, just keep it in-house and while we get the kinks worked out in the current algorithm. So we'll see what happens. But presumably, it will be able to go away uh, once we get our acts together here. An important reminder for acute HIV testing, you still need to send an HIV RNA sample. That's a separate sample in an EDTA lavender top tube that's spun down. 
Um, another caveat about acute HIV is that HIV-2 has a longer window period um, and is going to be poorly detected with the current testing. And for people who are high risk, you need to retest HIV-1 in the serum in two to four weeks or HIV-2 within four to six weeks. So. And this is my final slide. I have some supplemental slides if you want some more info. But just to reiterate, the reason for the algorithm change has to do with the fact that we want to get into using defaulting to nucleic acid amplification testing for HIV when, when we're really trying to detect acute HIV and doing that more as part of our routine algorithm. So ultimately, we're hoping we'll have an on-site reflex test that does that for us. We don't quite have it yet. It may take us a year, who knows, to get there, maybe shorter. Mark's really interested in this. So it would be great if we could get to that point. In the short term, you still need to order that HIV RNA separately. The fourth generation combination antibody tests are uh, really have improved our diagnosis of early HIV detection. The window period is just a lot smaller than it used to be. We are supposed to be uh, trying to focus on people who are at increased transmission risk, who have early and acute HIV infection, in order to reduce our community viral load and intervene in general with the HIV epidemic. Similarly, uh, we know that if we can link people to care after positive tests, and get them on antiretroviral therapy, we can both help them with their health as well as reduce HIV transmissions. And finally, our new algorithm helps with the diagnosis of, correct diagnosis of HIV-2. And uh, it'll be interesting to see over time uh, as, the, as we continue to have immigrants coming to the United States and also as these, uh, this algorithm is implemented further, whether we are actually able to diagnose more HIV-2 than we previously were. So thank you, and I'll stop there. Yeah. So in a primary care setting, if you see someone who has a mono-like syndrome, this fourth generation study, number one, how how soon can you get that and not have to order a viral load at the, in the initial? In other words, is it possible that this can take the place of ordering the viral load in that setting where it's just too early, it's, it's too early part the um, antibody hasn't been started to, to be developed yet? So that's this window that we were talking about where if you order the fourth generation combination antibody antigen assay, the uh, window period is down in the 14-day range, as opposed to the RNA when it's down in the 10-day range. So, so again, if, if you see someone acutely, they, they should come back rather than order. You know, like let's, let's say it's within 10 days or so. I know it sounds trite, but it actually has happened. So if, they, if, if it's around zero to 10 days, just the wisest thing is have them come back in, in two weeks. I think you have to do one or the other of two things. One is you automatically have them come back, and that would be a situation where you had a low pretest probability of acute HIV, 
could, you know, had an alternative diagnosis, um, and, and definitely could rely on the patient to return. If you have a high pretest probability, you're concerned that the patient won't return, then your alternative at this point is to order both tests and uh, try to get the lab maybe to not process the, uh, or process and hold um, the RNA until you get the, um, which should be back in, within an hour, 29 minutes, um, you know, so those are your, your immediate options right now. Yeah. So what I don't see on the, um, in the old charts that look like this, sort of the peak of the viral load was always where you saw where the clinical symptoms were. But where, where exactly do the clinical symptoms show up there? Because when you've got fever and pharyngitis, you're going to have P24. Would you ever have that before? I think that's a safe assumption that a lot of people who ha uh, people with acute HIV infection uh, should have p24 antigen positivity on these assays but I don't know that um, that's always the case and I can just there's a uh, I may need to find it and show you later but um, let me read you one thing here. Okay, let me just read you this, uh, set, this paragraph. Um, okay, among persons seeking HIV testing, programs that use pooled NAT after a non-reactive initial antibody immunoassay results have demonstrated detectable RNA in two per 10,000 to two per thousand, depending on population tested and generation of the initial immunoassay. Specimens with non-reactive antibody immunoassay results and reactive NAT results that represent acute HIV infection have been described in four to 32% of all new HIV diagnosis at the time of testing in some populations, especially men who have sex with men. Retrospective testing of specimens from high-risk persons demonstrated that third-generation immunoassays were reactive in 20 to 37% of specimens that were HIV Western blot negative but NAT reactive, and fourth-generation immunoassays were reactive in 62 to 83% of specimens that were NAT reactive but non-reactive with earlier-generation immunoassays. So it's a spectrum, I think. And so you're not gonna, someone's not going to have a fever of 103 in pharyngitis and not have... It seems less likely, I agree, but I cannot say never based on, you know, what I've seen. And sometimes we're in situations where people want to know what the last possible, um, so we talk about the 14 days being the average of when the fourth generation um, picks up. What do we know about what the range of that is? So, for example, if somebody had a sexual assault or or one of our patients had a condom break or an occupational exposure, and they want they they just want the assurance that the six month test used to give them and then the three month test. What what is the outside number we're going to use? For well, the repeat testing window that's recommended by CDC is two to four weeks, and the the range of the P twenty four the event the exposure um, two to four weeks after the test or no two to four weeks after the exposure after infection. So we can use four weeks as, so someone comes in and we do their first test and they say, I want to be really, really sure we can do that last test at four weeks. Right. 
Yeah. Other questions? Well, the recommendations for post-exposure testing still include later testing in four weeks. Why? Right. Why? Typically, <clears throat> there are some that, that go later. So, I mean, in here, we don't know what the outermost is. They're recommended to be four weeks. But there is still in the... Um, they haven't been updated haven't to reflect updated. the fourth generation. Yes, they have. The um, occupational ones have. Based on fourth generation. Based on fourth generation. Because that's an incredibly important practical thing. That we, we really deal with when people want that final closure of, a, of an event, from yeah. a known event, not just. Yeah. What's the sensitivity of the P24 antigen test alone? Yes, Mark. Do you remember the exact number? It's. So if you need to look at it. Okay, go ahead. You can say it depends on what stage of infection you're talking. Yeah. About. That's also very true. In the acute setting, the choice to look at it. One is the test. You've got to cut off about 25 nanograms per ml for the actual P24 antigen. So that's one way to look at it. But I think you're more looking at the clinical side of it. And in the panel, I think it's a 65. Sample of P24 only antigen is detected at 100%. Admittedly, that's a very small sample size. So the challenge really is, is finding those patients who are P24 positive um, and antibody uh, negative. There's been a number of studies looking at high risk uh, individuals, and looking at those studies, it depends on, well, I guess the, the P24 antigen is probably present, but at a concentration will that cut off. So depending on how you want to ask that, it could be, as Mary Margaret said, one of the studies that if you said it was 63%, and then an acute HIV window, um, if the P24 antigen is present at that threshold or slightly below it, uh, the sensitivity appears to be very, very close to 100%. Although statistically speaking, there's no such thing as 100%. So it's very, very good, but I can't give you a definite answer. Other questions? So there'll be a, a, one of those clin uh, lab announcements that you should see in your inbox coming out. Um, I'm going to rush uh, after I leave you all to put all this information on the HIV program website. So that's the link to that is in the announcement that's going out. And uh, you can direct people there if they ask you for general information. And we'll have links to all these resources there. You're certainly welcome to um, contact me or Brian or others. And it sounds like we'll be in close communication with the lab, reviewing any indeterminate results or things where the algorithm doesn't appear to you know, meet our initial EDH reporting criteria. So for example, contacting providers about needing to uh, get an additional specimen for HIV RNA testing. So. And uh, results won't be released in any of this until, uh, it's, it'll be the same rate as now, where nothing gets released until. Well, this fine. Is, this is a C comment. That'll be released as soon as the, the test is repeated. So what we do is we get a reactive result. We retest it and duplicate. And if both of those retests are still reactive, it'll go into EDH immediately a C comment. So the provider knows that we've already ordered the confirmatory test. And so in three days, that then gets released to the patient? Yeah. 
So, but we, it would never stick in by three days, we would know the answer. Uh, not all the time, which is currently a problem. Where if the, if the sample were to be tested on a Friday evening, the sample would not be confirmed likely until Tuesday. And that's one of the reasons why, uh, after the facial exam, Margaret, and respiratory infectious disease, giving feedback, we are exploring uh, one of two uh, confirmatory methods that we think may work here at DHMC. Uh, of course, it's a newer method, and we still need to do our investigation. So ideally, we would then have that confirmation, if not the same day, the next day. And at that time, we could talk more about changing our reporting form. Should hopefully 72 hours, that only time that more than 72 hours would happen would be on that Friday night right, the Friday blood draw. Night. Yeah. So. so just to go back to the question about the post-exposure guidelines, Mary Margaret mentioned that non-occupational are still very outdated, but the occupational were outdated in 2013. Uh, say a new recommendation, recommendation if a newer fourth-generation combination assay is utilized follow-up HIV testing exposed to healthcare providers, HIV testing may be concluded four months after exposure. So they are still doing a four-month. Now this is in the setting of getting post-exposure prophylaxis, which potentially could delay um, uh, uh, seroconversion, but um, still that's three months after completing. So why do you feel the need to have such a long window when diagnosis should be apparent within a month? And I think it has to do with the data that people have so far and our understanding and wanting to be, you know, err on the conservative side as the tests are rolled out. But presumably it will be able to be narrowed over time. We're probably stuck still saying three months for the fine. I think the other thing that you mentioned was the CMS comment time for their changes. And that's, it would, you didn't mention it as a barrier to testing, but I think one of the biggest barriers to testing has been the advanced benefit notice. And if that change makes the advanced benefits notice go away, I think that's going to make uh, primary care doctors and, and the advanced benefit notice will uh, only be triggered if you choose a diagnosis that is not uh, one of the covered diagnoses. Right, but the, the new CMS things basically say everyone can get one once a year. Right, that's right. The, so the, that's the ABN notice is a trigger is an internal EDH thing. So remember that process of getting the ABN to not trigger is around using that, uh, I'm gonna get the code wrong, other screening, other, other viral illness. Why would, we should be able to take that out of EDH once the new CMS guidelines go in. Right, but it's not out yet. Right, but so, it sounds like 30 days. Yeah. I mean, I think that's <laughs> progress. It is, it's great, it's great. All right, thank you everybody. Thank you.